Good morning, church. Uh, we've been in a series called The Waiting Game, and I have waited and waited and waited. This is week five of our series called The Waiting Game. I've waited for this moment. The most exciting text of scripture to share with you. Matthew chapter one, verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Are we, are we pumped up? Are we excited? Usually, usually introductions are supposed to be like, they're supposed to grab your attention and want to invite you in and bring you into the story. And here's what I have tried to do for the last five weeks is I have tried to give you backstory so that when I read to you a list of names, you do not see a list of names. You see the people and their stories behind it. When we have a, a long list of names, it's, it's easy to forget that these, when, when I say, like, the sticker is a generation, we forget that this is a life. We forget that this is somebody who was born and who had birthdays and somebody who had work and had to wake up and who fought the alarm clock and who was creaky when they got out of bed in the morning and they didn't know if they were going to make it to the next week because things were just that bad. Like, this is a life. And so when I have a whole series of lives stuck up here, it's easy to forget. When we come to a chapter, when we open up the Bible and we begin to read the story about Jesus and we see literally a list of names, the names goes on and on and on through 18 verses in Matthew chapter 1. It's like, cool, I got a bunch of list of names. And I heard a, a pastor this week um, who has been preaching for a long, long time, 30 years, and he said he went through his notes and he realized he has never, ever, ever, ever preached a sermon on Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Like just 30 years, he never went to it, because how do you preach that? So I knocked it out of the park early. This is my first run at it. <laughs> That's what we've been waiting for. Um, do we remember what it is that we've been waiting for? What have we been tracking? Yeah, you got it. What was the promise? I'm gonna crush. God says to the serpent, the woman, the, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And so we've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And these are the generations. This is, this is, by the way, the minimum number of generations. There are more. Matthew here, uh, he writes down 27 generations. And I think that's because he's tracking Joseph's lineage. Um, Luke writes down, excuse me. <laughs> Matthew writes, records 27 generations. Luke records 42 so this is the minimum number of generations of people before Jesus even shows up. God makes a promise that Eve overhears, and then this is lifetimes that doesn't ever happen. 
Nothing happens. God keeps saying, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to take care of this. And generation after generation after generation after generation after generation of grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents saying, God's going to deal with this problem. And it seems like he never will. And you feel that boredom already with me just describing it to you. Like, this is the danger of doing an introduction where I want to bore you on purpose. I want you to feel that God's time is not our time. And we've spent five weeks waiting. And we celebrated last week the arrival of a baby. They were expecting a mighty warrior who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And what God sends to us is a baby. And if we leave him at a baby, then we miss the, all the work that he's doing. Hey, that's not what he did. We've read passages this morning. His very first sermon was, y'all don't get it. The way that you think the world operates is backwards to how the world actually operates. We call them now the Beatitudes, and they get on plaques and T-shirts and stuff like that. But when Jesus shows up and begins to preach at first, the first thing he says is, you don't get it. It's not the way you thought it was. And he goes home and he preaches at home and he, and he opens up the scroll and he reads a passage of scripture from Isaiah. He says, hey, this is being fulfilled. I am the fulfillment of this scripture before your very eyes. And people say, Joe's kid? Get out of here. And they try to throw him off a cliff. And that's just the beginning. He was misunderstood and he preached and he said, you don't get it, you don't get it, you don't know why I came. He took 12 men and had them follow and live with him for years and years, three years he had these people walk with him. And he kept saying, I'm gonna die. And then he gets arrested and they're like, he's gonna die. And he's like, yeah, I told you this was gonna happen. Don't you, you don't, this is gonna happen. And he dies. And they're surprised. God, I thought you were going to take care of this. I thought this guy was the one. We've been waiting. But we know that that's not where it ends. That Jesus was killed and then raised back to life. And he comes back to life and says, I did this in order that your sins might be forgiven. You say, I didn't want my sins forgiven. I wanted the world fixed, right? Like I wanted, I, wanted, I wanted the curse to be lifted. I wanted to be able to plant seeds in the ground and they grow what I want them to grow and not all of the things that I don't want to grow. I don't want to water the weeds anymore. I just want all of my labor to be fruitful. I want work to be easy. I want to be able to communicate with my spouse in a way that they understand that I don't have to have a translator. Jesus, you forgive my sins. I just want the world to work. I thought you were going to take care of the thing that the serpent broke. He says, I started to. And I was going to go into it and preach to you, but I'm just going to mention that there's a passage in Romans chapter 8 that says we are not the only ones groaning. We are not the only ones waiting. That all of creation, that the earth itself and the trees and everything is groaning and waiting for God to do what he said he was going to do at the very beginning. We get very focused in on what God wants to do in us and we forget that when Adam sinned, God cursed the earth. 
And we're not the only ones waiting for redemption. That all of the earth groans. And Jesus comes and he dies and he's raised to life and he says, your sins are forgiven. And, 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 and there's something in us that still says, but was that enough? Like I've been coming to church for a while and I hear this guy, he keeps telling me my sins are forgiven and I can be reconciled to God, which is a fancy way of saying that we can be friends, like we can talk and that relationship can be restored. But I just want my life to work. Is it enough? Seems like we waited and waited and waited and waited and then what God gave us wasn't what we were hoping for. And now we're waiting again the day after Christmas. What do we do with that? Would you turn with me to Titus chapter 2? And if you're using a story Bible, it's on page 837. It's a small letter. Titus chapter 2, and let's pray together. <sighs> Lord, I'm reminded this morning as I come to you now in this moment of the psalmist, maybe David, I don't recall specifically, who wrote, How long, O oh Lord, must we wait? How long will wickedness rule in the earth? How long will wicked people have good things and good people have bad things? How long will suffering persist in the world? How long will innocent children die? How long will we have to deal with this? And Lord, when we focus in on that darkness, it can seem like you're not good and it can seem like you're not going to do what you promised. So this morning, would you captivate our attention with your truth? Would you captivate our attention with the hope that you hold before us? And would you draw us in to rest in you and to trust that you're going to keep your word? We thank you for this time together. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Titus chapter 2, and I'm going to start in verse 11, which is not my habit, but that's what we're doing today. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Let me read that again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grace of God has appeared. When we celebrate Christmas, this is what we celebrate, that the grace of God has appeared, the grace of God. That when God knelt down in the dirt and formed mankind to be like him, to walk with him, to learn from him, and to take care of the creation that he had made, 
And man was seduced into thinking, like, I can be God better than God can make me like him. That prize that I know better than God, or I want to know better than God, or I could possibly know better than God. And God said, I'm going to have to deal with this. And in sending his son, he started to deliver on the promise. And he had to take care of first things first. That God, or that man who was made to walk with God could not walk with God because we thought we knew better than God. And we weren't willing to listen to him. And Jesus steps in and says, you don't realize the damage that you've done between you and your creator. You don't realize that you who think you are alive and think you know better than God, you don't understand that you are actually dead in sin. That the things that you do and the attitudes that you have in your heart are not only killing you, they have killed you, you are dead. And Jesus says, I come to give life and to give life abundantly. Where God in the garden created life and became the first life giver, Jesus comes and he restores it. For the grace of God has appeared. Have you noticed that as we've gone through this, as we read through the, gene the genealogy of Jesus, that we talked about Abraham? Somebody who thought he knew how to help God and got ahead of God and was really, really zealous and maybe didn't go about things in the right way. We notice that Tamar is listed in there. And Judah. People who wanted nothing to do with God are just trying to figure out how to make life work for themselves and were just completely ignorant to what God was doing. These are the people that God used. And David, from a very young age, was on a trajectory for greatness. Anybody who's ever met a 10-year-old boy knows that that has to be a miracle. Like, that has to be a work of the Spirit of God. So we have a group of people who are young and old, who want to follow God and who don't give two rips about what God thinks about them. People who are trying their hardest to do the right thing and people who are just trying to make a buck. And so the invitation that Jesus extends from his very own family, by the way, is that it doesn't matter where you started out, you're all welcome. You can't earn it anyway. This is the grace of God that has appeared. That whatever your background story is, God says, I want you part of my family. You're invited in. Trust me for this. I give it to you freely. The grace of God has appeared. That's good news, by the way. I don't know if you're encouraged this morning at all. That's good news. That's the gospel, that God's grace has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, that we can be friends with God, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, we are trained by God's grace. 
God's grace is the foundation. We are trained by God's grace while we wait for God's glory. That's what we have here in Titus 2. That the glory isn't here yet. The restoration isn't here yet. The world as it should be is not here yet, but God's grace has already appeared. That God has started to accomplish what he, what he wanted to start at the... Yeah. That God has started to accomplish what he said he would accomplish in the garden, but that he's not finished yet. That God has shown his grace and his kindness that he would invite me into his family. Y'all don't know me the way that I know me, but that blows my mind. And I don't know you the way that you know you, but I suspect that you need a little bit of God's grace. And so it's good news that God's grace has appeared and there's still something in us that longs for God's glory and it's not here yet. And so we are trained by God's grace while we wait for God's glory. And the stories that we read in the Bible show us that God is dependable and he's trustworthy and he's going to finish what he started, no matter what it looks like today. I'll read it one more time. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." We're trained by God's grace while we wait for God's glory. And the purifying work is done by Jesus, and it's based upon his redeeming work. He says, I buy you. I've bought you out of sin. I've given you new life. And now I'm going to make you and form you and shape you into the person that I want for you to be. Which is great for a Sunday morning at 1058, right? Like, we're, you know, church people. We kind of get God's grace. Like, we love these kind of words, these kind of terms. And then the question that comes down to it, I don't know if you ever asked this of preachers. I tried to ask it of myself, is, so what? Does it matter? Like, what does that mean for me tomorrow? What does that mean for me and how the shape of my life? Like, Michael, come on. Like, you know, you already started. You already started by boring me. And now you're telling me that what you want for me to do is to live self-controlled and upright life. Like, what is this, 1950? <laughs> Let me read you the passage beforehand. Titus chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 1. And this is Paul, a pastor, writing to a young pastor, and he says to that pastor, he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. 
Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may not be put to shame. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So, <laughs> did you notice that the message is divided up into generations? Did you notice that the, that the grouping of people isn't necessarily in order, but there are groupings of people, and that every season of life requires a certain kind of discipline? And did you notice, too, that the generations are not blocked off into their own categories and separate from each other and never have to wipe a snotty nose? I don't know how to say this, but we need Kid Nation. And Kid Nation needs us. Twenty-somethings need retirees. Retirees need twenty-somethings. The picture of the church, the, the, the big C church, is not everybody segmented going off into their own room. It's, it's a family coming together and kids running on the platform while we're singing. Like, that is what the church is. It's okay. But old men, older men, take responsibility. Be sober-minded and dignified, well-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now you say, Michael, that's, that's fine. That's really, really cool. But like, that's just not going to fly. Like, that's not the dudes that I see on TV. That's not the people that I see in movies. I'm convinced that what we are entertained by is not what we would reach for in our real life. Like, we might like James Bond on the TV, but that's not the guy that you want to be your friend. Most of his friends die. And the women in his life he takes advantage of. I'm just saying, you might think he's cool, you might be entertained by his story, but that's not real life. The people that we reach for in real life when crises comes are people who are sober-minded, people who think clearly, people who are patient and listen well, people who are self-controlled, who are steadfast. Those are the people when crises come that we turn to, men. We don't run to the women who are constantly gossiping about how everybody else has all of their lives wrong. We go to the people that are controlling their mouths and who listen. Oh, honey, come here. The picture here is of a family growing together. And the challenge for us is to look across, like for us, and not just me looking at y'all, y'all to look at each other and to say family, to think family. Who are your neighbors and your coworkers going to turn to when crisis comes? I 
I've, I've, I've heard it happening even this week. Uh, somebody came to me and they said, Michael, can you pray for this, this coworker? Um, he used to be my boss and his daughter tried to commit suicide this week. And, and, and he never would listen to me. I would try to talk with him and I'd try to pray with him all the time and he would just blow me off and he thought that I was foolish and didn't want anything to do with me. But do you know who he called when his daughter tried to commit suicide? Do you know who he asked for to pray with him? See, our faith and our steadfastness and our hope for the glory of God is what people are going to look for when, not if, when crisis comes into their life. And so it's not, it's not exciting for me to, to say like, hey, I want you guys to be sober-minded and self-controlled and to be disciplined and to care about other people. Like that's, it's not like exciting news, flashy. But when I read Jesus' account of things, like that's, that's kind of what he did. He moved towards people in compassion and he was steadfast and resilient knowing the hope that he had. And so church, as we're playing the waiting game, as we're waiting for the world to be fixed, how are we going to wait? We're trained by God's grace while we wait for God's glory. So the first question is, have you embraced God's grace? Have you said, Jesus, I don't know that I get everything. I don't get how it all fits together, and there's stuff that doesn't quite make sense. But you say that you offer salvation, and you say that I can be right with God once and for all and that the accounts can be cleared, and I can stand before him not condemned and not afraid. And Jesus, I don't know how you made all that work, but I want to trust you for that. The first question is, have you embraced God's grace? Because it has appeared. Like the sunrise over the horizon. And you say, well, yeah, Michael, I've, I've been in church a while. I know the salvation message. I get what you're trying to do. I get it. Like, I get it. Um, <laughs> are you letting God's grace train you? We come, we come to Jesus because we know what our need is. We say, I can't bring anything to the equation, God. And there's, there's that, that, that little barb of pride. It gets us every time. There's that little barb of pride that says, you know what, God, I think I got a handle on this. Like, I thank you for washing me of my sins, but now I think I can take it from here. And in my experience, even this week, God will let that barb grow and twist and remind you that by grace you came into salvation and by grace he's going to carry you through it, whether you like it or not, you need him. And so are you allowing yourself to be trained not by your own hard work and not by buttoning up your bootstraps and not by trying harder, but are you allowing yourself to be trained by God's grace? Admitting your weakness and trusting that he's enough to meet everything that you need.
And then who is training with you? We can't, we can't step away from this passage without acknowledging that the way that God designed for this to work is within a community of people. We can't resolve ourselves to pull away into the monastery of our, of our bedroom and to just never have to talk to anybody and me and God will be perfect. Me and God will be straight. There are things in your life that you can't see that other people can see. It happened, <laughs> it happened for me last night. I was reading a book by a dude I've never, ever met before. And I thought, you know, I don't really need to read this chapter. It doesn't really have anything to do with me. And as he described what he was talking about, the, 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 the symptoms of the pain that he had gone through already, I thought, oh, my gosh. He's literally reading my mail. And I never would have identified this problem in myself. And so this morning... I went to Ryan. I said, I didn't, I, I didn't think this was true of me, but I read this last night, and I need you to know that this is where I'm at. Will you please walk with me through this as I try to understand what is happening and to try to trust God to help me grow through this? I, I, even, even coming to the diagnosis does not mean that you know the way to fix it. And we see in Titus 2 that somehow... Some miracle of miracles, God uses normal people in other people's lives to do the holy work of growing us to be more like Christ. Older men, the young men need us. <laughs> I say that like I'm not like the young guy. <laughs> Older men, I need you to show me discipline and steadfastness and love. Kid Nation needs you. Older women, the younger women need you to walk with them through the heartache of trying to figure out how the world works. Because if they come to me, I don't know how it works in a girl's head. I can't do it. I can try, and I can point to Bible passages, but there are ways that women can speak into other women's lives that men will never be able to, and I don't have to tell you that. Older women, make yourselves available to the younger women. Not because you've got it all figured out, but because the grace of God has appeared. And we are trained by God's grace as we wait for God's glory. Let's pray. again for listening. We hope you've been challenged, encouraged, and helped by God and his word. If you want more information about Grace Church of Ocala or would like to get in contact with us, please visit our home on the internet, ocalagrace.org. And if we haven't met yet, we hope to talk with you soon.